Welcome, everybody, to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and this week we are extremely honored and excited to invite Dr. Rabbi Zemer Yoreh, who will be discussing with us Pesach, maybe with a focus on Seder night and the Haggadah. Rabbi Yoreh is no stranger to Between the Lines, having spoken with us before as part of our Parasha series. He has a PhD in wisdom literature of the Hellenistic period from the University of Toronto, having also studied and gained his another PhD, I believe, from the Hebrew University, and has written numerous books and articles too. Perhaps one of them, Moses's mission, we'll be dipping into as we discuss Pesach too. He's also currently the leader of the City Congregation for Humanistic Judaism in New York. A very warm welcome. And Thank you very much. Look forward really to discussing. Maybe let's start with what does a humanist celebration of Pesach look like? Perhaps I put maybe as a footnote the most most difficult of all the Chagim to translate. Perhaps not. Yes, absolutely. The trappings of the of Pesach would any anybody who joined a humanist seder would find it intimately familiar. Whatever Jewish denomination they belonged to, they would recognize that they were in a Passover Seder. The, all the uh, Seder symbols would be there. They'd find matzah, they'd find a Seder plate, they'd find people sitting around, they'd find the four questions, they'd find the four children, they'd find the plagues. They, all of those elements would be there. It just, as you said, it was seemingly quite a difficult holiday to celebrate. And I think the reason you say that, and I might well, may be wrong, you're welcome to correct me, is that the Haggadah focuses on God taking Israel out of Egypt. And that's the story, that's, that's the line that's being focused on. It is really, it is really the dominant, it's the dominant storyline. Moses is mentioned in the traditional Haggadah only once, and God is seen as the savior of the Israelites from Egypt. And so how does it, how do humanists deal with that? Say countless, every moment in Jewish history, it seems that Jewish denominationalism has a Haggadah. So I'd say human, the humanists have created a fair number of their own Haggadahs to try to, to retell the story. And I would say, instead of taking Moses out of it, they got out of it. So go the opposite direction. They, that that yeah. took a few generations to, to get there. Yes, yeah. So I would say that I, I, as a rabbi of the human congregation, do push back on this a little. I don't want people to forget that there was a story that fully, that had God at its center. The story is it's told in Exodus. God is not the central character, but God is one of the central characters. And forgetting that, completely omitting God from the Haggadah, is doing, I would say, as much an injustice as, as omitting Moses from the Haggadah. So I like, you know, we had a, we're creating, we're at the end stage of creating a community Haggadah that we're going to use in our community for a pre-Passover Seder just in three or four days. And I made sure that the beginning stated, we recognize that the story that's traditionally told has God at the center of the story, but we don't, we believe in human initiative. And so we're going to tell the story from the perspective of human beings. And so that's, I want, I don't want people to forget that. But on the other hand, I really do value telling 
a liberation story from a human perspective. I think it's it actually is more connects it better to to the topic of liberation, which is such a big part of Passover celebrations in liberal communities. This liberation happens through human initiative, and so that that is instead of God saving a hapless or people who can't take care of themselves. So maybe could we dive down a little bit deeper into some of the ways in which the theology of the traditional Haggadah is recast in light of the emphasis on humanity? Definitely. But I think to explore that, we have to take a step back. Haggadah is the culmination of a process, like you were indicating before. It's a, it wasn't, the, fo- the story didn't always focus almost exclusively on God. That wasn't the dominant line in the tellings of, of the Exodus. And so I think we have to recognize the history. And I, one of my doctorates is in, is in Hebrew Bible, specifically biblical criticism. And I look at the earliest stories. That's my thing. And I, the first story of the Exodus, I think, had Moses squarely at the center with very little God as part of it. And then it, then later authors wanted to accentuate, wanted to put God in the center. So they added, progressively added more material that emphasized God's role in the Exodus. And that reaches that natural culmination with the Haggadah, actually, which is the retelling of the story of the Exodus until Moses is almost completely absent from the Haggadah. And uh, so I, in a way, like bringing humans back to the center of the story is bringing it back to the way it originally was. So I do appreciate, appreciate that. And yeah, it's really like, it, it's so hard that that's why I don't regard Magid, is, which is at the center of the Haggadah, as like a really retelling the story. We're not retelling the story of the Exodus. There's no, we might be summarizing certain parts of the story, but it's not a true retelling of a complete story. So that's difficult for me. Perhaps maybe to dip in further something you've alluded to, like around the history. Of course, in your book, Moses's Mission, you mention mm-hmm. a number of elements of the story that might seem surprising to those familiar with the canonical tradition Yes. According to you and your argument said that the Israelites were not enslaved, only being pre- prevented from leaving. Perhaps other elements, I think you refer to an original three and not ten. Yes. Gadda, of course, embellishes that ten yeah. or more fold. Maybe could you go back to yeah, those core things? So let me start with the plagues. I mean, uh, we see time afoot, right? You have the notion of so many plagues and like uh, hundreds of plagues in Haggadah, but so the embellishment of the plague narrative is par for the course. But it, I don't think that that it, Haggadah, the Haggadah was the first to embellish the number of plagues. I think you could see that process within the canonical text. I think that Ted was an embellishment originally, and, and we see. Uh, uh, but the first, the, I think the first original story had three plagues, which Moses did by himself without any intervention from God. And those were plague, plagues of hail, the plagues of locusts, and the plague of darkness. And under the guise of darkness, Moses and Israelites leave Egypt. But I, I the, the way I get to, to three plagues is it's the, over there in those three plagues that you see the tension between Moses's role and God's role most clearly. It's like, what what is Moses' Moses's role in those plagues? What, why is he needed? That's a question that is really very clear in those three plagues as opposed to the others. And that's why, it's, to me, I isolate a, an original three plagues specifically there. And then the idea to embellish the plagues serves a purpose for later authors, meaning to show how stubborn Pharaoh was. They want to punish Pharaoh as much as possible. They want to 
magnified God's power. Look how many plagues he could inflict on Egypt. And so it, it, it goes to seven. And then an additional three are added by, by a, a final P source, a uh, priestly source, who you know has a very different idea about the plagues. He thinks the plagues are demonstrations. And so he wants to show that Moses... Is Moses' magical prowess is greater than than Pharaoh's Pharaoh's magicians. He adds it in strategic places, and that's why you can see patterns in the plagues. You have two plagues with a warning, one plague without a warning. A pattern recognized by by the Mefarsh, by Rashi. So it's not that those are absent. So each author had his own purpose in adding additional plagues, and we get to ten, and then in later post biblical traditions, uh, they're willing to, they're happy to embellish it even further. So yeah, that's about uh, the plagues. I, I can address other parts of, of your question too. Yeah, no, it's good maybe to go back just to, you know, the original Exodus and your argument there that perhaps the enslavement sure. was not nearly as bad as yes. our yeah. enactment today assumes. So really, that's probably one of the more surprising aspects of, of I think, the original story. That Because it's so such a big part, such an integral part of the way we tell the Exodus story, is that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and then they got freed by Moses or by God. And so why do I say that the Israelites weren't actually enslaved? Because it just really looks like that the, the enslavement seemed to explain certain issues in the text. It came to explain like why the Israelites were prevented from leaving. Because because I think in the, the original story has the Israelites being perceived as a threat by the king of Egypt and the king of Egypt trying to deal with that threat. And then, and then he, he, the, the story starts with the midwives and such. But then after he tries that uh, trick with the mid, midwives, not uh, trick, but the cruel, cruel strategy, that doesn't do any more. But he does prevent the Israelites from leaving. We have so many instances in history where groups of people were prevented from leaving. In our own history, the Jewish history, just recently, the Russians. Russian Russian Jews were prevented from leaving Russia. So it's just that we understand that like, you can you can be a group that is prevented from leaving, but not enslaved. It's not it's but it's just if you go through the original story, you don't have it doesn't really talk about Israel's enslavement ever it talks about israel being prevented from leaving it talks about pharaoh's relationship with with the moses and such and his recalcitrance but it doesn't but it's not but it doesn't ever really speak about israel's enslavement it just speaks that when you look at it and this is not just for in the original bible you can see this you can uh, assurance of this tradition elsewhere as well it talks about the Israelites being sojourners in Egypt rather than slaves. Multiple times. And that sojourners is very different than slaves. You see this multiple times throughout, throughout Torah. That's what Israel's place in Egypt is talking about. The idea of Adim Hayinu Hayinu We repeat that at the Seder multiple times. But really, the way they're more often described is Gerim. So you're really arguing for an original kernel that was much more accommodating, which also has certainly been the case at various points in Jewish history, how important Egypt Egypt has been as well. Yeah, Egypt, Egypt, Israel and Egypt have the longest of histories. They continue a continual history from the very from the very early biblical period until the very, this very day. I mean, it's in a complex one of periods of positive and negative. But yeah, the slate, it seems like you, you look closely at chapter one, it seems like the language that is used to describe the slavery is very akin to other language associated with a particular later author. 
And so it seems like really in chapter one, they're not described as enslaved. It, it makes sense why somebody would then, how the story would evolve in that way. Meaning, okay, why were the Israelites prevented from leaving? They were prevented because they were enslaved, especially if you, if the length of the time in Egypt is, is made into hundreds of years, like it is in the, uh, in the canonical text, then you really have to have a good reason why the Israelites were prevented so many hundreds of years. And they were just a slave population. And so that's how they're, why they were prevented. Could you maybe go into just maybe a couple of the rituals and traditions associated with your Seder and how you make it relevant for today? So I think that, I think the idea of liberation and the stories of people enduring hardship is so central to uh, the modern experience of Passover. I mean, it's we're always, I would say, in liberal communities around in North America and elsewhere, just drawing analogies between uh, this original seminal story of liberation and other liberation narratives. Like we take the Go Down Moses, which is is a song sung by enslaved African-Americans. It has become such a big part of Jewish American satyrs. Some people speak of cultural appropriation, right? Think of it as this is, look at how the Exodus ties, ties these liberation stories together. Look at how seminal this story has been. And inspiring to so many groups of people and i think when because hardship is just the ever pre- omnipresent part of life that this it can speak to more universally and so that's why i think what we i would say big theme of our passover seders and i would argue probably in many liberal communities that would be the same they would probably they might couch it in more theistic language or such but i would what would say that generally that that theme is really very prevalent And maybe finally, what question will you bring, will you be bringing to your Seder this year, perhaps above above all others? Yeah, so I, I struggled with this question, Simon, as I told you before, but because I, there's not only a Seder is always full of questions, but I would say that for me, like, I, um, I have more and more not associated Passover with a good time, rather, I've experienced Passover. And Passover is a very, very busy time, but it's also a time where, you know, you, you, you spend with family, they're, they're like, you have to navigate tricky family dynamics. So that's probably going to be very central in my mind. How do I navigate tricky family dynamics? And so, but really it's, it's the, 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 this, in the past few years, I've had three Passovers sequentially disrupted by COVID. Last year was, uh, last year, my whole family got sick with COVID at Passover and, and, First Passover, of course, was the first Passover COVID, and the, the other one, people just were not ready. Nobody was vaccinated, weren't ready to meet, and so it was just, it was just. There's disruption and hardship that I've experienced Passover very differently, and also as a rabbi of a community, I've also experienced it differently. It hasn't been a joyous occasion exactly, and so I'm really like digging deep into Passover lately. So I, so it's just. There are holidays where you're supposed to be happy, like the holiday of Sukkot, where it says Ach Sameach, and really people focus on that. I think on Pesach, I don't, I, I for me, like the experience is different. It's not, it, there's a, an experiential aspect to, 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 to Passover that I really, I'm learning to appreciate. And sometimes it's appreciation in retrospect because it's so difficult. The experience of Passover is so difficult. I feel like my experience last year where I couldn't celebrate even with my closest family members, I just reflected, yes, Passover come together in hardship. 
and we move on and we try to celebrate as well this this important seminal myth just despite the hardship and because of the hardship both of them so that's what I focus on during Passover. Thank you for sharing that realistic, perhaps, in these days of, of gloom, perhaps. Yeah, um, yeah. You remind me a little bit, perhaps, of T.S. Eliot's opening of The Wasteland, April is the cruelest month. We, we yes. Looked, uh, we look yes. to Pesach, perhaps, as that time of liberation, but actually there's plenty <laughs> of caution to be had and yes. as, we, as we look around and, and remember. Yeah. Um, no, that's such a April, yeah, wasteland, April is the cruelest month has come to mind before. Thank you for bringing it, Simon. Yeah. Rabbi Yura, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing important historical insights and important elements that we can all incorporate as we approach Pesach in the next few days. Thank you, thank Simon. You. If you enjoyed this podcast, do please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do check out more of our exciting content we have for you on our mothership, JewishQuest.org. And we do look forward to meeting again soon. Wishing everyone a very happy Pesach. Hey, thank you, Simon. (laughs) 